Hi, guys. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, Alex is going to do a lot of the talking today. Oh, I'm doing all of it. For all three parts, I'm going to pretend to be Cece and James. Yes. Uh, you already heard me do the voices for everybody. I'm pretty convincing. That was me coughing like Cece just then. Wow. No. Hey, guys, I'm Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. And welcome to the 13th Floor Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Where... Uh, we're here to have fun and the points don't matter or whatever it was. <laughs> what? <said on> that. <laughs> What's it? What they used to say on whose lines? Anyway? That's what they used to say. Uh, no, oh, something else. That's they, they right. said something and the points don't matter. I don't remember uh, what it was. Goodness. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Alex is going to do a lot of the talking day because my throat hurts. So, uh, Alex. Yeah. So, welcome, uh, 13th Floriers. Um, <laughs> So I got the map out today, not really, because I wasn't prepared to be taking the lead, but I'm going to click on it. Boom. Thank you, Idaho. Boom. Thank you, Sudan. Uh, Sudan doesn't listen. Oh, Um, my God. (laughs) Thank you, United Kingdom. United Kingdom's killing it with their listens right now, as are Germany and then here in America, Arkansas. I thought I was talking. I'm sorry. I just have to give Arkansas... A tip of the hat because their numbers are off the chains uh, this week. Off the chains. You heard it yeah. first, Arkansas. Yeah, way to go, Arkansas. <laughs> oh, go. man. Well, uh, I have a, a big special announcement. Um, this week is <gasps> Friday the 13th, which is the, the mm. our favorite day of the year, and sometimes twice oh, yes. a year. And uh, – for that reason, we actually got a request for uh, spontaneous human combustion from B2B Tunning in Georgia. Took me a second. I was like, where is Alex and CC at? Georgia. In Georgia. <laughs> and uh, we, we started going over it. We thought, you know, this is a little bit more 13th floor after dark. And uh, for those of you who don't know, our Patreon, we use uh, about five different unique kinds of episodes. See, see the normal Thursday format for the standard podcast, uh, we, we get selected episodes from you guys that we draw from the base and we talk about it for a give or take an hour. But the Patreon's a little different. We have an elite vase and we also have five unique episodes. We have James Explains It All, where I just sort of talk about stuff. We have my Q&A, <laughs> where I just answer questions. We have occult news, where we talk about current odd paranormal things. We have an interview format and we have a quiz called Stump the Floor, where CC ask Alex and I questions and we compete and it's very and, fun because Alex and, is very competitive. Cause it's rigged. And, it's rigged. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so normally those kinds of episodes are just for patrons, but we thought since we had a request from someone who's not currently a patron and it seems a little more 13th floor after dark, which is one of our kinds of episodes where we talk about things that are just a little too hot for standard Thursday episodes. We thought, uh, since Friday the 13th is coming up, we're going to do his request, BDB Tuning's request, but we're going to make it available at 13th Floor After Dark, a normally a Patreon uh, Patreon exclusive episode available to everybody airing this Friday the 13th. Yay! So that's tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be crazy. That was a, a fun episode to record. Hmm. I had a giggle spell. Um, so you'll that hear, was funny. hear yeah. me laughing quite a bit. <laughs> spontaneous human combustion is never funny, but yeah, but spontaneous laughter is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, anyways, 
We are looking forward to releasing that tomorrow. That's yeah. a great promo, James. You Thank deserve you. a round of applause. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Um, James, I know that your your life has been turned upside down lately, hasn't it? Uh, it has. With the addition of two <laughs> new little pets yeah. to your little menagerie of insects. Who, yeah. who do you have now? Well, you know, it's funny. It's like super active right now. And I record my office where my spiders live and like spices on the wall. Thanos is on the wall, not the wall of the office. That would be crazy, but they're, they're all very active right now. Pumpkins running around, but I also have two new additions. I have an Acanthoscoria geniculata named Milkshake, and I have a giant vinegaroon named Pickles, and Pickles is right next to me, like on the desk, and is just very, very creepy and unusual. He is, have, he is very strange. Have you noticed that there are more boys in the yard? <laughs> I knew you were going to make a milkshake joke. Oh, had a man. feeling. Had a feeling. I'm still upset that you didn't use the name that I suggested. Yeah, I really Jones. liked Leche. I actually really liked Leche. Yeah, it's not too what? late. Yeah, I'm sure it. you did. You know what? Let's let's uh, let's do a poll for the patrons. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. There we go. James, stand strong. <laughs> stand strong. Do not let go. her bully you. I like the name milkshake a lot, though. I, I think do. you need. I think that milkshake is a milkshake. You just need to use leche for another, another spider in the future. You can have two. There milks. we go. Um, so yeah, you guys. James, ha- his family has grown. You have to get a. You have to get another spider with another milk name, and you have the three milks, like three milk, like tres leches, milk, like the milk, milks, katiers. Yeah. No. Oh, no. I didn't think about that. But there's like tres leches, like James said. It's a dessert. Pastel tres leches. Mm. Well, you know what? I think it's time for us to do an icebreaker, James. Sounds good. What's, what's your icebreaker um, this week? This one's a oh, little wait. lazy, but I think it's fun. Wait, oh, do you what? Have one already? We didn't even what? tell everybody what we're talking about. This episode, you guys, oh. I'm so sorry. We're so Don't we're we do that? In the I don't room. even know when we do that in the show. I usually enter I this is you drop the ball here, Alex, because usually when I open <laughs> the show I say, This week we're talking about I was told literally seconds before we started recording that I was going to be doing this. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I was given oh, no man. preparation time, to be clear. I just wanted Alex to lead the charge, man. <laughs> I wasn't given the tools to succeed. Um, what are we talking about today, Alex? Um, today, we were talking about survival in the outback. Surv- Lost yeah. in the outback. Or maybe lack thereof. Yeah. Of survival what? Oh. depending on if you're dead or not alex oh my goodness <laughs> it's lost in the outback is the theme today yeah but james you combines said- my favorite things the tv show lost and outback steakhouse <laughs> oh my God. I- james when was the last time you ate outback steakhouse it's been quite a while every time we go it's just a disappointment yeah yeah <laughs> it's yeah well that's why i don't go i, I go to better steakhouses <laughs> They don't even serve kangaroo there, so it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. No, the well, only it was thing started by a guy in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only thing I would want to go and eat is their blooming onion. That yeah. is oh, delicious. Oh man, it sure is good. So good. I can't taste anything right now though. So that was yeah. a joke about the the um, what the hops the hoppy animals. I just forgot their name. The they're not dingoes. Kangaroos? Kangaroos, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, it's funny you should say that because that actually is my icebreaker. I thought it was kind of a lazy one, but what's your favorite Australian animal? Oh, well, after feeding them just a few weeks ago with Gwen, I'm going to go kangaroo. Those things are awesome. Yeah. They are cool. 
We went to Kentucky, Kentucky. Down Under in mm. not far from Bowling Green, Kentucky with our little tiny Gwen. And we got to feed the kangaroos and they were adorable. Yeah, you got to pet them and hang out with them. They're, I know in, in real life, you guys, if you ever see a kangaroo in real life, do not approach it. These ones are basically like little... They're so used to being around people. They grew up in the environment, so they're not, like, dangerous. But in they're real life, awesome. kangaroos are very dangerous. You get to feed them? Yeah, you should go to Kentucky Down Under. I think that my favorite animal from Australia is the kookaburra, just because it's so pretty. Is they the are one really that, pretty. That does that laugh? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a cool laugh. Yeah. Yeah. James, what's your favorite animal? Oh, man. That's a tough one. Um I really do like um I really like wombats. They're cute, mm. they're fat, they uh they have square poop, which is just really weird and interesting. What? Yeah, they, they have Oh yeah. Cube. Yeah. They have cute fascinating poop. little animal. Fun little cool? fact uh actually about Australian wildlife. Um Australia, the wildlife for whatever reason, the marsupials won the the arms race in the mammal arms race. And so you have marsupials and monotremes in Australia. You don't really have, and, and technically New Zealand, like that that little region, uh, Australasia, I guess you could call it. Um, there's only one marsupial that that's not in that little circle. Do you guys know what it is? The possum. Yeah, and it's yeah. in America. How cool is that? We have a marsupial. Yeah, that's our, our one and only marsupial. I love possums. Yeah. Possums are neat. Alex just showed me a picture of wombat poo-poo. Looks yeah. like little charcoal bricks you'd put on your... Yeah. yeah. On your grill. Fun fact, Australians actually use that on the grill. Alex, you were, that is, that is ridiculous. No. <laughs> on the Barbie, as they say. Uh, I think that James, I feel like a wombat could be your spirit animal. Possibly. Possibly. I think, I think so. Um, and then Alex, your Australian spirit animal. What is it? Tasmanian devil. From Tasmania? Yeah. Alex's is the Tasmanian devil because he just likes to cause chaos wherever he goes. I like it. And then, I'm okay with it. what's mine? You guys have to come up with my Australian spirit animal. The sloth. Yeah. I don't know where sloths are from. <laughs> I'm from Australia. Oh um, my gosh. I'm, I'm going to say the koala oh, bear. I was going to say koala because they're mean. <laughs> I'm going to punch you right in your teeth. I got, All right, I got the what? dead silence from Cece and the, the laughter from James. I think I'm satisfied. It's time for me to pull up my notes. <coughs> Do you guys want me to tell my story? I'm going to go oh, first. Right. I'm okay. Alex, I'm okay. All right, so here Why we go. Ask? My My two sources for my story were the West Australian and then also the Los Angeles Times. Okay. Okay. So, um, Sam will be sharing the story of a man who got lost in the outback because that's our that's our episode in 1999, specifically within the Great Sandy Desert in Western Australia. And man's name is Robert Bugucky. Okay. Have you guys ever heard of him? No. Fertile bulgogi is one of my favorite Korean foods. I yeah. love bulgogi. Oh. <laughs> Since I can't taste anything, that just sounds like heaven right now. Mm. Okay, so um, he got real lucky when he got lost in the outback, but he also kind of wanted to get lost. Oh. Let me explain. Mm. Was he trying to find himself? Yes, he was. So Look in the mirror. I'll save you some time. 
Well, Robert, he was raised in Malibu, California. Um, he ended up moving to Alaska later in his life. And he was a firefighter, I think a volunteer firefighter. And it also said that he was a furniture removalist. I don't know if that means that he just like moved furniture for people. He's really good at getting out like, yeah. of uh, those corners where you can't like every you're like it's impossible to get that couch. This this is the guy you call to come in and to just come and remove it. Finesse that thing like it's <laughs> I, like it's. I'm, I'm imagining like together. Snake Pliskin from Escape from New York, who's like, so I heard you have a couch you need took out. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, Robert he grew up as part of a Catholic family. So he grew up in the church, and as he got older, he just really wanted to have, like, a come-to-God moment. Mm-hmm. And he uh, had this spiritual upbringing, but he never really felt like he had met God personally. So he wanted to go meet him, in a sense. And he says that when he was 18 years old, he would dream about going out and fasting in the wilderness, like Jesus, so that he could pay respects to his creator and, and whatnot. Which I think is pretty yeah. crazy for, like, an 18-year-old to want to do. Yep. But that's what he wanted. And fast forward through life, Robert went to school. He entered the real world. And he was just like, man, the real world is really shallow, isn't it? And he's like, you know, money is supposed to rule the world. And I'm not a fan of that at all. So he decided that he was going to go on this desert truck to kind of find himself and have this spiritual moment. And the article that I read stated, quote, he had one goal. He wanted to believe in heaven or the afterlife that basic tenet of Christianity that is meant to give meaning to the trials, pain, and tests of earthly life, end quote. So that's kind of just paints some color on the background of what's about to happen here. And he wasn't sure. He had no idea which desert he wanted to go for his spiritual quest within. He was looking at a few places in America. But then he was on a little bike track through Australia And he was in this little shop and he saw a map that had the great sandy desert. And he just thought, there it is. That's the one I'm supposed to go through for my spiritual journey. He's like, it's a sign from God. And so he prepared for his little quest. He fasted for days on end to kind of like practice. So when he went into it, he knew the gravity of the situation. Yeah. So it's not like he was just going into it like, oh, I'm going to go on a spiritual quest without having any preparation at all. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted to do. And so his plan was to go on this little bike track. And then at one point for a week, he would go off in the desert without food and water to find God. And he's going to fast, do all that stuff. And he packed some stuff to help him get along the first leg of his journey um, when he was on his bicycle. And he had about a week's worth of food some camping gear, his Bible, and about 26 liters of water, which is a nice bit of water. So he sets off on his bike, and then about two days into his journey, he just got really frustrated because the desert was very sandy. So he couldn't easily bike through the desert with how sandy it was, <laughs> and then he also couldn't push it. Like, it was just, it was weighing him down too What was much. the name of the desert again? The Great Sandy Desert. <laughs> <laughs> he was making his trip too cumbersome. So. <laughs> he said to heck with this thing. I'm leaving it behind. So he left it along with some of his gear and also about eight liters of his water. I don't know why. I guess it was just too heavy to carry yeah. by foot. So he thought oh, he didn't wow. need it. I would assume he probably thought that maybe his trip would be a lot shorter than it ended up being. Mm. And he left on, I think it was July 11th, 1999. 
So he decided to carry everything on his back. And you guys, wouldn't you know it? He got lost. Oh, boy. He got lost down there. This is the guy who didn't anticipate sand in the great <laughs> sandy, sandy desert. desert. Well, he realized he realized he was lost after a couple of days, I guess, walking around. So he keeps wandering. He's getting hungry because he's eating all of his food. He only had a week's worth of food. He's a- eating all his food. He's getting thirsty. He's feeling all the emotions. And then he has this moment where he's like, he has a little temper tantrum in the, the wilderness and then he's like, I have to have water. So he kind of asked God, what do I do? And he said he had this thought that came to his mind. It was dig and you will find water. And so he starts digging and behold, you guys, he starts to find that the the sand is getting wetter the further he goes down. And so he found water. Oh, good for him. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. And then he always, I, I thought this was nice. He, after he dug up his little holes, he filled them back in so animals wouldn't fall in them. Which I thought was yeah. a sweet little touch. But eventually he comes across a sand bowl, which he turns into a shelter. And Alex, in case you're wondering, a sand bowl is like a little ditch in sand. Oh, okay. It's like a little bowl. <laughs> and a, a so he turns <laughs> he turns that into his little shelter. And he just has this thought. He's like, this is where I'm supposed to be. So he kind of found his little place of Zen on a spiritual journey. He's fasting. He's like, I'm where I'm meant to be this is where god needed me to be still lost mind you but he's happy at least and then one day he's sitting in his little sand bowl and then all of a sudden he's it's a plane flying overhead and he's just a little behind the scenes about what's going on behind the scenes there are lots of people that are looking for him because before he left on his little journey he sent his parents a postcard that said hey i'll reach out to you when i get to my destination and then they didn't hear from him. <laughs> and then somebody. Oh man, that's pretty vague little postcard. It was there. it was a very short postcard. He said that he had written out this long letter about his like spiritual journey, and then he was like, "Ah, I'm going to burn this. They're not going to read this. this is, I, I don't want to tell them this." So he burned it, and then he just sent them the postcard that said, "I'll talk to you soon." And then wow. uh, some other people found his bike, his abandoned bike, and there was a receipt nearby, so they were able to say, oh, "Okay, this is Robert Bugucky's." And so they reach out to his parents. They're like, "Are you? Is your son missing?" And they're just like, "They sent us. He sent us this postcard that makes no sense." And so then the search begins. Everybody's looking for him. There are people all over the place looking for him. <laughs> and he's just sitting here in his little sand bowl. Here's the plane over top of his head. And then you guys, he's like, "I don't want to be found yet. I'm still on my spiritual journey." So he hides. <laughs> oh my god yeah he hides because his, his spiritual quest was not over yet so yeah he's in his little tranquil sand bowl he hides and they move on and so at this point he's still lost but he's at least he's happy he's in his little zen place right he eventually realizes that it's time to move on he's starting to get hungry and thirsty and he's like i need to find civilization and so he's like okay that was a nice little moment in my sand bowl let's keep moving and then he starts walking, but water's becoming a lot harder to come by at this point. And he um, he said that he ended up trying to suck some moisture from these little yellow flowers he found, but they made his lips all sticky, and then bugs came and stung his lips, <laughs> which sounds awful. Wow. So he's having a hard time at this point. This is wonderful. And he he said that he he found this like little gorge, found this little uh, thing of rocks. And he had this moment. I'm not sure if maybe he was just like out of it because he's very weak at this point. 
but he had this vision that he saw a friend who had passed away years before. And his friend was like, it's okay to ask for help. And he said that he kind of had this realization because his entire life, he was like, I don't need help from anybody. And finally he's like, no, I might need some help here. And so he finds these little white rocks. He puts them out and they say help Mm. so that as people, Mm. if there is a plane that flies overhead, they'll see it and they'll be like, Oh, okay. He might be here. So he puts those little things out at this point. He's like a little, little skeleton just trucking through the outback and lucky for him, a helicopter from a television station spotted his little um, his little help sign, and Ooh. also he left some of his gear behind, including his little Bible. So um, they spot that, and then I think it was the next day they found him sitting near these rocks, and underneath the rocks he'd actually found a whole bunch of muddy water, so he's just drinking from the muddy water. Yeah. And then he mm. saw that the little helicopter was coming, so he was found by a television news crew, and they – get out and he said that when he saw that they because he saw them fly overhead and he was like oh maybe they saw me and then he saw them turn around he's like oh yeah they saw me and then he just thought oh crap what am i going to say to them i haven't talked to a person in like a long time what am i going to say to him and then he said that that landed they came up to him he's like weak as can be and they're like are you mr bogucky and he's like and then at that point he's like oh thank god they know who i am so i don't think he even realized that people were like looking for him as heavily as they were but then after that they took him to a hospital where he got you know checked out but his journey again it began on july 11th 1999 it ended 43 days later on august 23rd this guy was wandering through the the outback Mm. but he said that Mm. afterwards he looked his body in the mirror and he said quote it was mostly the face and the butt that got me my first thought was i looked like abraham lincoln just before he was assassinated Gaunt face, scraggly beard, didn't look like me. My arse there was no fat on that at all. Just a sagging down pair of cheeks. End quote. <laughs> so that's how he said he looked. And an interesting oh, wow. fun fact about his trip, he went 40 days without eating a meal, which is a pretty prominent number in the Bible, right? Mm. But also he was 33 years old in his trek, as was Jesus when he went on his spiritual quest. Hmm. Yeah, and they both fasted and they sought inspiration God, which I think is interesting considering the whole reason he went out here was for spiritual guidance and stuff like that. Right. I think it's also important hmm. to note that when he was doing this, is technically winter in Australia. So the temperature in the desert was not quite as hot as it normally would have been. It's like upper hmm. 80s. So I think that probably helped. If it had been hotter, he probably would not have made it quite as long as he did in the, the outback. But that is the story, you guys, of Robert Bogucki. Neat. Fun yeah. fact, he is now a construction worker. I don't know what he is, but he's he seems like a very upbeat. He's a carpenter. Happy yeah. kind of yeah. a guy. So who's going next? Uh, I'll go next, James. Ooh. Okay. All right, Alex. I'm ready to rock and roll, everybody. Who are you talking about? Me? Yeah, you. Me? I'm talking about Ricky Mickey. Miggy. Miggy. Is it McGee or Miggy? McGee. It's Miggy. It's, what? It's, M- it's Miggy? M-E-G-E-E. Miggy. 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 <laughs> All right, go Is this on. why you picked him? Yes. <coughs> um, <laughs> wasn't that obvious? <laughs> um, so, I had Ricky McGee. Miggy. I'm, I'm, yeah, wish me luck. Um, so, in Miggy's 2010 biography, Miggy 
said that there were three men sitting on the side of the road. He said he saw them, and he offered them a ride to, to get in because turns out that they were out of gas. So, oh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take one of you on a ride. I'll go. But then while, while he's driving to the petrol station, as they say in Australia, he starts to feel sick. He's a little, like, dazed and confused, and then the next thing he knows... He blacks out and he's waking up and these three men are now attacking him. So I guess he blacked out in the car. They turned the car around, took him back to where they were, and then they attack him and they knock him out. And Migi is struggling with consciousness. He kind of wakes back up. He sees that they have a gun. Um, but he does remember that they didn't threaten to use it on him, but they and they did give him water. So pretty nice of these people, right? Yeah. Pretty yeah, nice of them. This is all very confusing. Yeah, very confusing. Uh, they must have attacked him again because he sees, like, the last thing he sees is he sees them packing up their camp to leave, and then he's out again. And when he wakes up, he is covered in a black plastic uh, in a hole in the ground. That has had dirt and rocks thrown on top of it. And he says actually the reason that he woke up was because four dingoes were clawing at him. And then he like, he like woke up. So he wakes up and he's in the middle of the outback. Four dingoes weird. saying, hello, good morning, sir. I don't know what they would sound like. But the weird James. thing is, is they also took his shoes, but they left him $12.30 in his pockets. This is that just insanity. It doesn't make any sense, right? No. But they took his shoes, but they left the money, or at least the $12.30 that he had in his pockets. So after waking up, Migi walks around for several days around the Tanami Desert. And he loses consciousness several times because of heat exhaustion. So he's constantly kind of... Not constantly. That's kind of a funny image. But he's passing out quite a bit because the temps are regularly at 104 degrees out there. So it is like blisteringly hot. It's hot. And what Migi did to survive was actually pretty cool, though. So according to an interview that he did with ABS Radio, he said, I ate the leeches raw. Straight out. I picture Frank. From Always Sunny in Philadelphia saying this for some reason. <laughs> I ate the leeches raw. Straight out of the dam. Grasshoppers. I just ate them. <laughs> but, the, but the only thing I really sort of had to cook was the frogs. Which I slipped into a bit of wire. Uh, slipped onto a, bu- a bit of wire. Stuck the wire on top of my humpy. Which is this little shelter he builds. Um... And let the sun dry them out a fair bit so they were crispy. And then I just ate them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this needs to be made into a docudrama with Danny DeVito. Oh, my God. I love this. Yeah. If you keep picturing Frank, it just gets better and better. Um, Yeah. He also said that he he had to drink water from various water holes that he was finding along the way. And then when water wasn't available, this man must have been watching Bear Grylls because then... He drank his oh, own urine. No. Um, but he said that he would chill it, I guess, at night uh, to, suppress, <laughs> to suppress the flavor. What? To suppress the flavor. 
Like it's short name. Oh my god. It gives me a stomach. <laughs> so it, Bear Grylls says it's the right thing to do, but he, Bear Grylls doesn't suggest to cool it off. He says to drink it while it's hot. Uh, Does that, is that Bear, what Bear Grylls doesn't know what's up? Yeah, yeah. There's an episode where he kills a snake. He uses the snake skin as like a as like a artificial bladder, I guess, to hold the his urine. Ooh. He drinks it from yeah. there. While, it's better to drink it while it's warm because the bacteria and stuff is it, is it hasn't settled. Yeah, don't don't actually get your your wildlife survival techniques from bear though. Hey, just saying, leave bear out of this. <laughs> so he drank his own urine, you know, and you know. He's worried about the flavor. So, Migi then stumbles upon a decrepit windmill where he stays for a while, actually. And he finds he finds this feed trough from this abandoned cattle yard that he turns into his, um... Oh, he turns into his, like, temporary shelter. I forgot what he calls it. A bunty? Uh, a hunty? A, a, hump, a, a, hump, a humpy is what it's called. So he takes this thing, it turns it into a humpy. It was just a little tiny shelter. It's really low to the ground. You mentioned it earlier. I know I did. That's why I couldn't remember. <laughs> I'm tired too, okay? So <laughs> so how long did he live in this trough, though? His, his his humpy. How long does he live in this little thing? Sir Frank, by his... I lived in a trough. <laughs> <laughs> so how long does this man live in a trough by a windmill? Uh... <laughs> I'm going to say 52 days. James, how long do you think he does it? I'm going to say two years. <laughs> that would be incredible. <laughs> no, he stays there for 10 weeks. 10 weeks. 70, long enough. 71 days he spends out here living in his trough, scavenging for food when he could. His little frog legs? Mm. Yeah, his little frog legs. And over time, he is getting weaker and weaker. Uh, he even at one point has an abscess of the tooth <laughs> that he has to resolve Ooh. with car keys. Ew, that's it like, t- hey, isn't oh that like God, the movie? That's incredibly Castaway? dangerous. Yeah. What did you say? Isn't that like the movie Castaway? I can't remember if that happens. In he Castaway. takes. I think he takes uh, an ice, an ice uh, skating thing and takes the tooth out. <sighs> that's probably it. Yeah, yeah, James said it's very yeah. dangerous. Don't do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this guy was in it to win it, right? Again, I can picture Frank taking out a, te- a tooth with the car keys. Um, yeah. Eventually, though, he was discovered by some ranch hands that said he looked like a walking skeleton. And they said they found him in one of the most isolated places in Australia. And he was flown to the hospital where they said he was super emaciated, uh, but actually really well hydrated. So good for good for Miji. He stayed, he stayed hydrated. He drank his water. And after six days at the <laughs> hospital, Miji discharged himself and left. Six days? Yeah, he was just there for six days. He actually didn't really have any serious injuries or anything that was too bad. Like The story of Ricky Miji has some odd elements to it, though, that have been called in question over time. So he's changed his the opening of his story. A bit. At one point, he gets drugged, and then he gets, uh, and then he's left for dead. And then when he revises his story upon the second time, he is driving the car, and they carjack him, kind of like I said. And they may have. Now his theory is that they either 
got to his drink that was in his car. He actually apparently had a refrigerator in his car. Um, <laughs> and that they may, they may have drunk that drink or that they may have like got him with a uh, needle and injected him with some sort of drugs or something. Um, so he doesn't, wow. So he got knocked out some way, which is the dazed and confused portion of the story is he thinks he got drugged. Now his story does change and exactly the chain of events that happens before he's left for dead. Um, he's told two different stories. I don't know which one he has stuck to over this time, but he has changed his stories and his car was actually never found. You know, it was stolen. Uh, another thing that's weird is he resolved the abscess with the tooth with car keys. So did they take one key? What happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, they could have carjacked it and, like, I don't know, jumped it or something, I guess, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if they would need to do that if he was unconscious, uh, which is odd. And also, some guy, he really wanted to rain on Mi- uh, Ricky Miggy's parade because he said, <laughs> um, it's actually the wet season. So it wasn't that hard to survive out there. And I'm like, come on, it's still 104 degrees every day. Like, leave That's the man hot. alone. Yeah, I would hate that. He's still going to be yeah. struggling, even in the he, wet season. Just because it's wet doesn't mean like it's raining for him every day, right? Yeah. 70 days in a temperate climate is still impressive. It is, especially when you're living in a That's trough. not a temperate climate. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, Ricky did try to sell his story to news stations. Um, his way to prove that everything was real that he kept telling people <laughs> was that he would eat frogs live on TV. Um, he never, okay. he never did do that, but he did try to tell to sell his story for about fifteen thousand dollars. He tried to get people to bid on it at that rate. Eventually, he did uh-huh. sell the story for free. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so that being said, the doctors did say though that he had clearly been living in really harsh conditions. And him being out for that long of a period of time did seem like it was possible. Um, And they did not discount the possibility of his entire story, but no one, no, no one was able to find any trace of a crime, which I'm not sure you could, if it was like out in the middle of the desert and people stole something and knocked you out. I'm not, I'm not sure how they're going to find a trace of a crime anyway out there. And Ricky, after this big hubbub, he's obviously has written a book, but now he moved to Dubai and he actually does work construction. Oh, Dubai. So Ricky works construction in Dubai now. How sweet. Yeah. Well, that's the story of Ricky. Ricky Miggy. You know, some elements are called into question, but people do not debate that he did live under harsh conditions for a extended period of time. Well, all right, James. James, it's your turn. Okay. I feel like lately all my topics have taken a very dark turn. Yeah, it's because and... you've got a vinegaroon now. <laughs> By the way, he is, he is, I got a lamp on and he, they're supposed to not like the light, but he's doing this weird thing where he's stretching in front of the light like he's praising the sun, like, like flipping Dark Souls. Uh, I just filmed it, and I think I'll submit that to Instagram because I don't know what's going on. This is creepy. He, lo- he literally looks like he's worshiping the lamp. That's right kind of creepy. Um, <laughs> so, Pickles. yeah, Pickles. 
<laughs> but I'm uh, I'm covering the backpacker murders, oh. and they are quite dark. Uh, in fact, they kind of remind me actually of our Charlie Manson episode. Really? But uh, yeah, so there's this fella named Ivan Milot, and his mother was uh, or his father his mother was Australian, and his father was Croatian immigrant, and he was the fifth of fourteen children, and or sorry, I got that wrong. Uh, I can't remember how many siblings he has. Don't worry about it. He has a brother. That's important. <laughs> but anyway, he was a very, very disturbed individual. It's pretty obvious, and we'll get more into it in a minute. But uh, during the late 80s to mid-90s, there was a huge, huge, kind of like with a stri- uh, Alaska now, there was this huge pop culture emphasis on Australia. You know, travel to Australia, you know, Crocodile Dundee, Shrimp on the Barbie, etc. Um, it was a very romanticized thing. And so a lot of people, because it was very cheap to do, decided to uh, hitchhike or backpack through Australia. And what ended up happening is several unsolved murders took place. And that scared a lot of folks. And they started hitchhiking in pairs. Hmm. Enter Ivan Milot, the backpacker murderer. Hmm. So, yeah. September 19th, 1992, there were uh, two individuals who had gone together, again, because of all these unsolved murders, um, and their bodies were discovered by two runners in uh, Belanglo. Uh, Clark and Walters, they were found. Walters had been stabbed 14 times, chest, neck, back, everywhere, um, which totally would have paralyzed her prior to her actual death. Conversely, conversely, this is the interesting thing. You know, Walters is a woman. Uh, anyway, Clark is also a woman. He shot her 10 times in the head. Hmm. That's insane. That is an insane number of times to be shot mm-hmm. in the head. Um, in fact, the police actually think that, that he had used her as target practice. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the following year, October 93, some guy's looking for firewood, and he finds bones in a very remote part of the forest. So he, he goes to the cops and they find two bodies, Gibson and Everest. Mm. Gibson had been stabbed eight times and a large knife had cut through his upper spine, paralyzing him. Very reminiscent there of, of Walters. Um, and the stab wounds would have, would have absolutely killed him. Heart and lungs were just pulverized. So that's messed up. Everest, on the other hand, uh, is who is also a woman. So we're, we're up to three women and one man. Uh, Everest had been beaten. Her skull had been fractured. Her jaw had been broken. And there were knife marks on her forehead. She'd been stabbed multiple times in the back. That seems to be an incredible commonality among these. Hmm. So now the police are genuinely concerned. They were, they were concerned before because we're two dead people. But a year has passed. Those are unsolved murders. There's been plenty of unsolved backpack murders up to this point. So, you know, what are you going to do? So fast forward just a month, November 93, a skeleton was found in a clearing during a police sweep. They determined it was that of Schmidl and they, she had had been stabbed um, eight times. And guess what? Her spine was severed and her heart and lungs had been punctured. Ooh. Again, these all follow the same kind of MO. Cut the spine, paralyze the victim, and uh, just absolutely destroy the heart and lungs. Ooh. So that's that's interesting. Habsheed and Nuke Bauer were also found 
uh, on a nearby fire trail in a shallow grave. And uh, Habshid had been decapitated. Her skull was actually never found. They only found the body. And Nuke Bauer had been shot in the head six times, which to me implies more target practice. And because of the state of their bodies, it was heavily suggested that they hadn't died instantly from their injuries. Good Lord. Which I'm really baffled by on that because shot in the head six times to me suggests that, it, again, more target practice is, is pretty much what I'm saying. So a huge task force gets started. Uh, and, I mean, like 20 flipping detectives and analysts, big, big task force. Um, they start looking for him. And they notice, obviously, that there's an enormous commonality here. And in addition, all the bodies have been dumped in a remote area under sticks and ferns. So something's up here. You know, some, and the women in particular also showed signs of rape and sexual assault. Um, so something's, something's up. So they think the killer, probably a man, given the, the sexual assault components, um, probably had a four-wheel drive and had restrained his victims and spent a lot of time being very, very uh, sadistic. Uh, the one positive thing here uh, is that he shot his victims multiple times. Well, they looked at the casings. They were twenty twos, and they looked at the cartridge boxes, and they they decided, you know, well, maybe this is multiple people, but whoever it is, at least one of them has this particular gun, right? So, November of ninety three, the police get a call from a fellow named Paul Onions. And he, he, he's in Britain at the time. He says that he's been backpacking in Australia. And when he was hitchhiking, uh, he took a ride from a fella named Bill. And Bill's in quotes. So about a kilometer from uh, Belanglo State Forest, Bill stops, pulls out a revolver, ropes, and says that he's going to rob him, right? Onions runs. <laughs> Who can blame him? Bill ran after him and shot at him. But in that time, he managed to flag down a motorist named Joan Barry, and they drove off and they explained to the uh, local bowl roll police what had happened. So the detectives looked through that records and thought, well, maybe we can, you know, take that report and make use of it. Well, it had actually been missing, but... So, I mean, that that one blows my mind. But thankfully, one of the constables had actually taken notes So during this, this uh, particular interview. So they started looking around, and they found out that, uh, you know, it, it made sense about this particular girl who's unnamed presently, but she happened to be dating a fella named Ivan Milot. And all the information started adding up. So they arrested him. He went on trial. You can probably imagine what happened next. Uh, he actually never confessed to any of them and insisted that he was not guilty. Um, but all the evidence, I mean, it was just a mountain of evidence. He had the gun. He had the whole nine yards. So they're like, no, you, you totally flipping did this. So they give him multiple, multiple life sentences. I think seven life sentences, um, including attempted murder for onions. <laughs> and uh, what ends up happening in uh, the, the New South Wales Supreme Court is they give him multiple sentences, like I said, and they start looking into more things, and they think, well, maybe he didn't just do these seven, because you got to remember, he's also insisting that he didn't do any of them, so they're not going to get any information. A lot of serial killers, when they're arrested, they sort of get proud about mm -hmm. what they did, but this guy did not. He insisted, you know, no, no, I didn't do anything of the sort. So, 
He goes to jail. Um, he is not treated particularly well in jail. Inmates are beating him and things like that. Um, he continually, I mean, I'm talking constantly, appeals it. And he is also frequently uh, appeals for like different things. At one point in May 2011, I'm not even kidding, he lost presumably 33 pounds on a nine-day hunger strike, which I don't think is possible. I don't know how you lose 33 pounds in nine days exactly because they wouldn't give him a PlayStation. Oh, my gosh. Um, they they ended up not giving a PlayStation. Pretty much every time he appealed for something, like, no, you're a monster. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, And – what ends up happening is he finally does get a toaster and a TV, and people lost it. People were furious about that. But uh, every time he would appeal for different things, it, it wouldn't account to anything. So, I mean, he would do really dramatic things, too, to get attention, to, to get his appeals. He cut off his little finger with a plastic knife. He was going to mail it to the High Court of Australia to get them oh to appeal it. Oh, my gosh. He, uh, he swallowed a bunch of razor blades and staples oh, and stuff. Oh, oh. I mean, just he did a lot of really crazy things in order to try and get things that he wanted. I mean, everything about this guy screams psychopath. I mean, everything Dude. about him just screams psychopathy. Um, eventually, he gets uh, diagnosed with terminal esophageal cancer, which moves to his stomach and then becomes esophageal and stomach cancer and dies. And uh, at the time... <laughs> His family decided, you know, hey, um, the New South Wales government should should pay for this. And then the New South Wales government was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, instead, they they cremated him and they had his actual prison account pay for the, uh, the cremation. So, yeah. Now, what I find very interesting, though, is his own brother insists that uh, he actually – all this stuff happened in 91, 92, 93, right? And some people think that some of the other killings that he may be responsible for goes back to 89. But his own brother said, hey, um, and, and incidentally, uh, well, no, I'll just keep going with this. Um, he, he, he says that his own brother killed this uh, cab driver. So, and that was in 62, Neville Knight. That, that happened in 1962. So. How old was he then? Maybe. Uh, uh, well, let's see. He was born in like, I want to say say 40-something, which that's another odd thing about the guy, um, is 44. So, yeah, he, he died at uh, 74, you know, and that was three years yeah. ago. But what I find oddest about him is that, too. Um, I mean, if he – it's an odd thing for a serial killer to get started so late in life, and it's an odd thing – that he had no priors. And so this, this claim about 62 to me, it suggests that there were probably more people involved in this sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Now it gets weirder. His great nephew, Matthew Millett and his friend Cohen Klein, who are 19, um, they were actually sentenced in 2012 to 43 years and 32 years respectively in prison for murdering David Ocelloni on his 17th birthday with an axe at the Bilanglo State Forest. What is going on oh, with this family and killing people in the woods? Wow. So, yeah, really freaky stuff. It's inspired movies and shows and the whole nine yards because it was such a grisly series of things. And incidentally, uh, in uh, he, he got married in 1983 and had a kid by this uh, one lady. Um 
And she actually left him a few years later for domestic violence. Again, everything about this guy screams psychopath. Mm-hmm. So, wow. yeah, the, the, the thing to take home here is don't hitchhike it anywhere, period, let alone the middle of the outback, because it's pretty isolated. You don't know who you're going to run There's a reason to. why hitchhiking isn't really much of a thing anymore. Yeah. yeah. No. Mm-mm. Well, <laughs> wow, James. Um, thank you for sharing that story with us. Yeah. <laughs> that was dark. Is there dark. anything that you guys want to uh, mention before we draw from the bikes? Uh, yeah. Our music by Grant Cook. You can find it on Amazon Music, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you listen to music. All right, baby. Draw one from the bikes. We're drawing from the regular base this week, not the Patreon base. All right, got one. All right, you guys. Oh, wow. Okay, all right. Well, this week, or I guess next week, we are going to be talking about animals who save lives. Ooh, be hard to have a dark version. Yeah, we're going to have a nice little light episode next week, and this is submitted to us by Libby in St. Petersburg. Okay. Mm. So, Libby, thank you so much. We're going to talk about animals that save lives next week. Mm. So, I guess until next week, you guys, we hope that you can keep keep it it strange. strange.